you to join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 7 for today's reading of God's Word. I'll begin reading from verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of a woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of God. And now I'd like to welcome, go ahead, you may be seated. I'd like to welcome up our our guest speaker, Pastor Steve Meister. Uh, We are a church here that loves to hear the preaching uh, of, the word of, of the Word of God, and so we are thankful uh, to Pastor Steve for coming from Sacramento to do just that. So, come on. Well, before we turn and to consider this very important portion of God's Word, if you'd permit me a brief personal word of thank you for having me and welcoming my family and I. We're glad to be here. We've been praying for you at Emmanuel Baptist. In fact, we devoted a portion of our prayer meeting on Wednesday night to pray for you and to pray for God's grace towards you and your witness here in Santa Cruz. I originally grew up just outside Salinas, just south of you, so this is very much sort of like coming home, and I especially miss it this time of year when we're uh, broaching the century mark in the weather and you're still in the 70s. Um, It's good to be back And I serve as one of the preaching pastors there at Emmanuel, and I'm grateful for Steve and his fellowship and for our partnership together in the gospel here in California. But I'm sure if you're like most of my congregation back in Sacramento, there is not a little evidence that the last year and a half or so have had an impact, hasn't it? We've been tossed out of sync in so many ways of the patterns of work and rest, uh, the means of grace, and even regular fellowship. I've noticed amongst our people and even amongst wider community, anxiety and animosity and anger, uh, even spiritual apathy have shown up in our lives. 
Family life is often more tense. Marriage is a little more sharp. Friendships have been more distant. And in so many ways, even commitment to the fellowship of God's people in the church has seemed a bit more tenuous. How do we regain the love that we had at first? How do we rekindle our affections for Christ our Lord and devotion to his church? Or maybe let me ask you, what would you say to another brother or sister whose love for Christ seemed to be wavering? How would you encourage them? Consider our passage that we've just heard read and how love for Christ is kindled to begin with, where it comes from. Of course, you know the Gospels, Matthew through John, unfold for us who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, who he is and what he's done in his work. And the Gospel authors, by narrating different encounters with him from different people, what they're trying to get us to do by the Spirit is learn more of Jesus and how we are respond to him. How are we to come to him? But I don't know if you've noticed, often when we hear or read the Gospels, we tend usually only to identify with the heroes in the narrative. Have you noticed that? We'll identify with the disciples, of course, until Peter says something foolish, then we don't want to identify with him. So we might identify even with the Lord Jesus himself. So here in this passage, our first instinct might be only to be indignant at Simon the Pharisee incredulous at his self-righteousness. Or we might want to assume that we would only be compassionate towards this sinful woman, just like our Lord Jesus. But what I want us to do this morning is to consider identifying both with Simon and with this sinful woman at various points as we consider this passage. And I want us to see here in this portion of God's Word how the majestic grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in forgiving our sins is the motivation of all our love for him. It is how the grace of God in Jesus is what motivates and births and kindles love and service and devotion to Christ. I want us to look at this passage together through four lenses. I want us to see a self-righteous Pharisee, a selfless sinner, a servant by faith, and then we'll look at a Savior's forgiveness. Let's look first at our self-righteous Pharisee, a self-righteous Pharisee. And Luke doesn't want us to miss this. He repeats it twice in verses 36 and 37 of this chapter. He says, it's a Pharisee that invites Jesus. And in verse 37, this woman goes into a Pharisee's house. Now, the supposition I work with and that we all should have is that by nature, we're all Pharisees. It's innate to us to seek to prop ourselves up and justify ourselves by what we have accomplished. And the Pharisees, we have far more in common with them than you might expect. If you love the phrase, let's get back to the Bible, that is the root of the Pharisees' movement. The Pharisees grew among the Hasidim in ancient Judaism between the Testaments, old and new. And it was a movement of Jews to return to God's law and to get away from the encroaching influence of the Gentiles, of the Greeks, and then later the Romans. But the Pharisees went far astray because in their ostensible attempt to return to God's law, they, and to help people obey it, they created rules, and then rules about rules, 
And these rules stood for a long time and became inflexible traditions. And they equated all of their rules and all of their traditions with God's law. And what's worse is that they taught that if you follow all of their rules, which they said were God's law, then you were right with God. That's what it meant to be right with God, was to follow their rules. You were then righteous. So in fact, for a Pharisee, as we see in this passage, to be a sinner was an entirely other class of humanity of which they weren't a part. That was not them. Sinners were people that they avoided. Sinners were people whose association you did not want to be tainted with, even being under the same roof. That's why in verse 37, it is stunning to read that this woman who is a sinner, entered a Pharisee's house. This is the beginning of a scandalous plot. There is a sinner in a Pharisee's home. And this was the Pharisee's big problem with our Lord Jesus. They could not deny his miracles, as they saw earlier in this very chapter. But their big problem with him is how could he, who claimed to be a rabbi, and who made these radical claims about his identity, associate with sinners and have no care for their rules or traditions. So earlier, as I just said, in chapter 7, and maybe if you read it later this afternoon, in verses 1 and 10, Luke is showing us the power of God in Jesus. He heals the sick. He raises the dead in verses 11 to 17 of this very chapter. In verse 16 of chapter 7, people were marveling that a great prophet was among them. And then in verses 19 to 20, Jesus unfolds to the doubts of John the Baptist, if you remember. He unfolds that he was the one God promised because of all that he had done was fulfilling the prophets. And then he goes on right before our passage to identify the Pharisees' response in verses 34 and 35, that they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. That was their big problem with Jesus. He was a friend of sinners. People you did not befriend, you avoided. You ostracized. Because you were right with God, and they weren't. And you didn't want to be tainted by association. This is why Simon, the Pharisee, in our passage, is inviting Jesus over to his house. He's interrogating him. He's trying to figure out who is this man who seems like a great prophet, who does such great miracles, but associates with tax collectors and sinners. Now, this event, we need to know, would have been a little different maybe than a lunch we might be familiar with today. Lunches in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East this time, were public events. People ate outside in in courtyards. The gate was often open, and the public could come in and enter, especially when rabbis and teachers gathered. They would come and listen to the conversation and learn, as it were. It's also very likely that as a rabbi, and as the rabbi invited over for the meal, Jesus would have spoken and taught before the meal. So we ought to imagine there was some measure of a public teaching after he entered the Pharisee's home. We saw something like this earlier in Luke chapter 5. When Levi, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, also named Matthew, when he comes to Christ, he throws a great feast, Luke says, in chapter 5. And in verse 32, if you remember what Jesus taught at that feast, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is openly preaching. He's calling the people the Pharisees want to avoid to repent and come to him. 
He's calling sinners to repentance. That's what he's teaching. Maybe he taught the very same thing in Simon's house. We don't know. But with such a guest of honor, there would have been certain social etiquette that Simon the host would have been expected to exercise towards his guest, this great rabbi Jesus. We see a hint of it in what Jesus is saying in verse 44. He turns to Simon and indicts him for not washing his feet or greeting him with a social kiss or putting pleasing oil on him because this Pharisee didn't invite Jesus to honor him. That's not an intention. He invited Jesus over to interrogate him, to investigate him, to figure out why this man who seems to do such great things does so much wrong by associating with sinners. What is wrong with this seemingly great prophet? And all his prejudice seems to be confirmed in verse 39 when he sees the woman touching Jesus. That seems to settle the case for Simon. Well, he can't be a prophet, because if he was a prophet, he would know that's a sinner. And Simon just assumes that people like that don't touch prophets, or else they'd be defiled. He would be recoiling. Jesus should be kicking her away, not accepting her devotion. Simon can't believe that Jesus would associate with tax collectors and sinners, But what Simon never stops to consider is whether Jesus should be associating with him and whether they should have any association at all or he's worthy of it. Now, as we put ourselves in Simon's feet, as we think about how this woman was put in another category for Simon, let's be honest for a moment and, and think she kind of puts us in another category for us too, doesn't she? We might like to think we would welcome someone differently, but let's think about it. Think about the quiet self-confidence that you have in regard to yourself when it comes to those people. It doesn't matter who those people are. It could be different for every single one of us. Just think of who the people are when you think of those people. Whatever group where you might quietly have self-talk that says, I'm better. Obviously, I'm better. That they're in some different class of humanity entirely. Now, the truth is, self-righteousness and legalism are still with us. It still remains among us. It's innate to us. Often, we don't recognize it today because it shows up differently than it did in the first century with the Pharisees. It's packaged differently. Today, often legalism comes in much nicer packages than it did in the first century. It comes maybe in a short sermon series on how to be a good neighbor, or how to live generously, or help others, or transform the culture, or change your life. But we don't recognize these things as legalism because it's always shared with a smile, the assurance of God's love, and often comes with some pretty peppy music. But step back and consider what's often being shared in the visible churches in our day. To be a Christian means being nice, transforming your world, becoming a different person. And what are these? They're all rules. They're all standards. They're all commands. They're what God expects. And has any of us met them? Have you transformed Felton yet? Why not? 
Have you become a completely different person yet? Why not? And if we're honest with these, we will either sink into self-despair or we will become self-righteously what? Arrogant. And assuming that we have done all these things. Legalism comes often in a nicer package. Legalism also today, very interesting in our culture, often comes off in self-pity or victimization. When we nurture an identity of one who's hurt or wounded or mistreated, now don't get me wrong, we can be hurt and wounded and mistreated truly. But when that becomes an identity, it easily becomes a mean of justifying oneself above others And we're seeing it widespread in our culture today. I'm better than everyone else because of what has happened to me. Because of what happened to me, I can excuse any manner of conduct or thought or action because of who I am as a victim. Now, we could, we could continue multiplying examples, but hopefully you get the point. Whether it is legalism by niceness or legalism by victimization and self-pity, legalism is still around. And the central issue of legalism is it doesn't take seriously the great question that Anselm posed in his medieval text, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man? You have not yet considered the great weight of sin. And that is what this woman had considered. So the second lens we want to look at from the self-righteous Pharisee is to look secondly at a selfless sinner. This woman, a selfless sinner. We're told in verse 37 by Luke that this woman is a woman of the city who is a sinner. Now, we don't know exactly what she's guilty of, but we can imagine. We know that Jesus says later in verse 47, her sins which are many. And for the Pharisee to instinctively know she is a sinner and to expect Jesus to know the same, it must have been something obvious and scandalous. Maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe something very close. But regardless, she was seen as someone who did not enter into this kind of company, who should have known she was not welcome at this lunch. But this woman, she enters and she breaks all convention. Because as Luke says in verse 37, she learned that he was there. That Jesus was there. So she goes right in. Now, by Jesus' reasoning later, in verses 47 and 48, what Jesus shows is that her love is proof of forgiveness that had already transpired in her life. I want to quibble with the language a little bit in the ESV of verses 47 and 48. The ESV says here, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. It would be better to read this like the New American Standard or other English versions, as her sin, she had been forgiven, therefore she loved much. That her love is the fruit of prior forgiveness. And in verse 48, it would be better to render this, that her sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. In a prior encounter, maybe, maybe before the meal in Jesus' teaching, maybe earlier, this woman had come to hear that Jesus calls sinners to repentance. That he calls them to come to him and receive forgiveness, and she had come. And she had heard him preach, and she had wondered at the breadth of the offer of forgiveness. 
Maybe she heard something like what Jesus says recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me, all who you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This woman, guilty of many scandalous sins, was looking for rest. There was none to be found by the Pharisees because they saw themselves as a different class of humanity. And yet Jesus is proclaiming freely to all there is rest and forgiveness and grace in him. So she comes in love for Christ from her prior forgiveness. And you see that in her selfless devotion. Consider a bit the courage it took for this woman to do what she did. She entered a Pharisee's house. It was guaranteed she would be insulted and scorned and mocked and belittled. She would be reminded again of her shameful conduct of the sins of which she's guilty, and that she's unwelcome in polite society. She already knew that. She would be reminded again shamefully. But her devotion to Jesus is going to make it even worse. In verse 38, she stands, Luke says, weeping. And Luke here uses a word that's elsewhere in the New Testament translated for heavy rain. She is sobbing. She's pouring in tears. And she's standing over the feet of Jesus with ugly cry face. And then she undoes her hair, which is even more scandalous because women did not undo their hair in public. That was something to be reserved for private moments in home. But she is there in a moment of intimacy with her Savior, crying, devoted to him. And then she washes his feet like a menial slave and kisses his feet and pours expensive ointment upon him. This is embarrassing devotion from someone who's already a social outcast. She is making her acceptance in polite society even worse. She's become completely oblivious to public opinion. Does not care, obviously, only to be devoted to the Lord Jesus. And we have here in this Selfless sinner, a picture of denying yourself to follow the Lord. Is it possible to be cool, relevant, applauded by polite society, and be faithfully devoted to the Lord Jesus? Not typically. That's not usually how it works. But how often does the Christian's love and obedience to Jesus get squeezed out by what others think of it? Our Lord talked about that so often. So often we love our own comfort and convenience and frankly social capital more than Christ. Again and again, Scripture reminds us that following the Lord Jesus, loving Him, it's always been inconvenient. It's always been difficult. And frankly, it's always been a bit embarrassing before a world who hates Him and rejects Him. But the Christian life is 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 like this woman, it's standing at the feet of Jesus in embarrassing devotion, willing to serve as a slave of the one who has announced and purchased our pardon. Faith in Christ and visible love for Christ, we see here they're inseparable in the Christian life. One flows from the other. 
But how does the love get produced? What's the proper order of faith and love? And that's so critical in what we see next in the third lens, a servant by faith. Why is this selfless sinner in such pouring devotion and love to Jesus? She's a servant by faith. And let's identify now with Simon again and listen as Jesus instructs him about what's going on in this woman that Simon can't compute. And first of all, in verses 39 to 40, we ought to chuckle a little bit as Simon in verse 39 says to himself that Jesus mustn't be a prophet. But then in verse 40, Jesus answers his thoughts, which is pretty funny. He's not a prophet. Oh yeah, well let me tell you what you're thinking. And Jesus answers Simon. And notice even in Jesus engaging Simon, we see that the Lord Jesus writes off no one. He doesn't write off the self, self, this sinful woman. He doesn't write off the Pharisee either. He doesn't get indignant and storm out of his house and leave him. He engages and, as it were, evangelizes Simon. He enters the home of tax collectors and Pharisees to seek the lost. And to seek this Pharisee, beginning in verse 41, Jesus tells this story about a moneylender and two debtors. And by the amounts of the debt and the scandalous forgiveness, it's obvious that Jesus has another point in mind. He's not telling a quaint story about financial transactions. There's a moneylender and two debtors. One of them owns ten times more than the other. Now, for some perspective, a denarii was a day's wage. So you have one who owes nearly two years of wages. So just calculate that for yourself, whatever that might be. Two years of wages, and one owns, owes two months. But the crux of the story is really in verse 42. Notice in verse 42, Jesus says, they could not pay. He canceled the debt of both. Neither one of them could pay. The one who owed two months couldn't pay it. The one who owed two years really couldn't pay it. But the difference between the two at the end of the day was really immaterial because both of them could not pay. That's the point of the story. That's the penny that has to drop for Simon by the power of the Spirit. But the question is, even though both are facing an impossible debt that neither can pay, who is likely to feel it more? Obviously the one who owes two years of wages, right? Obviously the one who owes 500 denarii. They're going to know this is hopeless. In the first century of the ancient Near East on subsistence living, regaining two years of wages is, is ridiculous. They didn't have tech startups you could invest in and become a billionaire in a couple years. It wasn't going to happen. You're done, and you know you're done. But the one who owes two months of wages, what is he going to be tempted to feel? This is doable. I could maybe pull this off. I might have enough life left. If the wife and I put together some austerity measures in the home budget, we work a little harder, maybe get the kids out in the workplace sooner, we might be able to pull this off. It seems achievable. But that's why the point of the story is so critical. If you owe a debt that you cannot pay, does it really matter how much it is? It doesn't, really. Does it really matter to rank yourself according to others based on the amount of debt? Look at you. 
You're pathetic. You owe two years of wages? That's ridiculous. Well, but you can't pay two months either. Does it really matter the difference? When the day of reckoning comes and you have to pay the debts and neither one of you can pay it, does it really matter the difference between how much you have to pay? No. Both of you are going to go to the same debtor's prison and both of you are going to be accountable for a debt you can't pay. You see the point that Jesus is trying to make for the Pharisee? That he's trying to make for us? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this story is what the Bible means by what it says when it says we are all sinners. When Scripture teaches that everyone is a sinner, it is not saying that everyone is bad as they, as they could be. It is obvious that some of us are worse than others. Some of us are incarcerated this morning and some of us are able to freely move around society. It's obvious that some have committed worse acts than others, and the Bible doesn't deny this. That's not what the Bible means when it says all are sinners. We're not all as bad as we could be, and we've not all sinned with the same gravity as others. Clearly, this woman had sinned more than the Pharisee. Jesus says as much. Her sins are many. If you were a landlord picking a new tenant, you would pick Simon the Pharisee and not the sinful woman. Guaranteed. Now, what the Bible says when it says we're all sinners is that every single one of us, regardless of degree, has failed at the most basic responsibility we have as creatures of our great God and Creator, which is to perfectly and exactly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do so by devoting ourselves to what He's told us in His Word. Now, who has done that? Not even the most religious people on the planet have pulled that off. No one has done that. Simon didn't even honor the Lord when he came to his house for lunch. He has failed. Just like every single one of us. None of us are any different. God is near us and with us. In Him we live and move and have our being. We enjoy His gifts, our family, our vocations, all He provides, the very air in our lungs and the beat of our heart. But is He the motive and spring of every thought, action, and deed we ever do? Of course He's not. Even good people have to honestly say, no, that's not true of me. Love God. I haven't even gotten close. And even our most admirable acts are always tainted by mixed motives and selfish ambitions in our hearts. This is why Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single man, woman, and child on the planet down through history has failed to attain the status of glory before God because we have all failed to perfectly and effectually and perpetually obey His Word. The point that Jesus wants us to grasp is that at the end of the day, the difference between us and a scandalous sinner is one of degree, not one of kind. It's not another class of humanity. It's just a difference of degree among humanity. We're all sinners, and none of us can pay our debt. That's the entire point for Simon the Pharisee. That Debt, verse 42, can be canceled. 
Now, the word translated cancel here in our Bibles, it means graced or forgiven. Clearly, Jesus is not talking about just finances. He's pointing to the greater reality. The cancellations of our debt is about the debt of sin, the wages of sin, and the grace of God. But notice in verse 43, also the surprise of Jesus' question. Excuse me, verse 42. He says, of the two debtors, which one of them will love him more? The moneylender. He doesn't say which one of them will be more thankful. He doesn't say which one of them will be more relieved. He says, which one of them will love? Which one of them will love him more? You see here, Jesus is pressing really the spiritual point of his story. It's about love for him, love for God. From where does love come? Again, look at verses 47 and 48. Her sins having been forgiven, therefore she loved much. Love comes from the forgiveness of sins. This woman who knew the immense burden of her sin, who did not fool herself like the Pharisee and knew, I have an impossible debt. If getting into the presence of God and eternal life is based on acts, I'm done. And she knew it. And that immense burden had been lifted by the free grace of God in Christ. She'd been forgiven. And it poured out then in wetting his tears with her, wetting his feet with her tears and washing with her hair, kissing his feet and all the expensive ointment, her embarrassing and extravagant love for Christ is because of his great free grace and the absolute cancellation of all her sins. Every scandalous thing she had done. This woman's love and devotion come from the same place as the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of God, reverence for the Lord, Unbending devotion to Him comes from His forgiveness. Comes from knowing His grace. How is Christian love and devotion formed? It's formed by grace. It is realizing you're pardoned. You're justified. You're you're accepted by God. Your judge that you fear has become your Father who welcomes you. Not by works. But what motivates devotion and service is God's grace canceling Every sin. It's proven by the opposite in Simon. Verse 47. He who's forgiven little, loves little. Now Jesus, as he often did, he would address the Pharisees on their own terms. So he'd refer to the well or to the righteous. By by saying forgiven little, Jesus is not intending to say Simon's sins are no big deal. He's meeting him on his terms. Simon would say, well, I have little to be forgiven. And Jesus is essentially saying, and that's why you have very little love. That's why your love for God, even when He's standing in front of you in the flesh, is so very meager. Simon saw himself as someone who needed little forgiveness, so he demonstrates very little love for Jesus. Christian, do you understand the source and motivation of our love for the Lord? It's in canceled sin. We serve and love our God not to be accepted by Him, but because we already have been. But because we've been welcomed. We've been made His children by grace. 
the vision of all godly ambition and all devotion to the Lord Jesus, of all sacrificial service, it comes from his extravagant love. And I'm convinced, I know as a pastor of my own congregation and of those I visit, we need to hear this again and again and again. I saw a church sign recently that said, it's simple, love God, love others. And I wanted to pull over and talk and say, really? That's simple? How's that going for you? How is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly and perpetually going? How is loving every single human being you're nearby perfectly, perpetually going for you? Is it really simple? It's actually not at all. Now, of course, loving God and loving others is good because that's God's good and holy and righteous law. But every single one of us has failed. And either we will see that honestly and despair, or we will see that with self-deception and puff up in arrogance. That's why we mean to be reminded again and again, neither of these helps us grow in love for Christ. Love God, love others is not the gospel. The gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ has perfectly loved his Father and perfectly loved others. And in him we receive the righteousness of God in Christ. Forgiven, debt canceled, welcomed by God, his beloved forever. And this is the hinge of everything in the Christian life. This is the great turn This is the great difference between biblical Christianity and everything else. It is this upon which the Reformers and the Reformation staked everything. And the heart of the difference between us and Roman Catholicism, for example. The difference between us and Roman Catholics is not that we don't believe that works are a part of the Christian life. Of course they are. It's where they come from. It's the place they're in. We disagree about how it starts. John Calvin rightly said, the teaching that love is prior to faith is madness. It is faith alone that first engenders love in us. It's exactly right, and he learned that from the Bible, from Jesus, from right here. In fact, without faith in Christ, without love from the grace we have in him, there's no chance of ever doing anything remotely out of love for God. Simon, who had devoted himself to very particular religious acts, did not love God. He loved himself. He feared condemnation. He did what he thought he needed to do to get God off his back. But he didn't love him. But this sinful woman, knowing what she had done, knowing what she had done in grievous sins, receiving his free grace, poured her life out in devotion. One of the great Reformed confessions, the Belgic Confession in Article 24, makes this great clarification. It reads, Justifying faith so works within Christians that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. Performing religious acts because we love ourselves and don't, we be, don't want to be condemned by God is not seeking God in His glory. It is only we've been welcomed by our Father by His grace. Loving Him. Without love for God, nothing we ever do approaches 
the standard of good works that Christ calls us to and has called him into his presence for. It's only by grace. Let me ask you, dear Christian, has your love and devotion lapsed because you've forgotten his gracious forgiveness? That you, by faith alone, are a child of God. He loves you. He accepts you. He receives you into his family and his household. Regardless of what you have done and what you will yet do before this life ends, you are his because of Jesus Christ and faith alone in him. That brings us to our fourth and final lens, a Savior's forgiveness. We see a Savior's forgiveness at the end of our text. Jesus turns to the woman to publicly make the point of who can give this forgiveness for all to hear. He says in verse 48, your sins have been forgiven. So truly, Jesus here is more than a prophet. Notice he doesn't use the prophet's formula. He does not say, the Lord says your sins are forgiven. He says, I tell you. Jesus walks around like he owns the place and can speak for God. Because he can And of course, that raises the very question among those there at the table with them. Verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, I want to say that is a great question. It's an outstanding question and one that everyone needs to ask. The Pharisees are not wrong to say that the right to forgive sins belongs in God alone. So that leaves us with one of two options. Either Jesus is guilty of inexcusable blasphemy which means he is off the table as a good teacher because good teachers don't blaspheme. Or he actually has the authority of God to forgive sins. That is, he actually is God himself who has taken on human flesh. The second person of the triune God stepped into humanity and can forgive sins to those who have faith in him. Those who trust him are saved, as he says in verse 50, are rescued from God's judgment. They rest and receive Jesus and are rescued. This is Jesus' message that he was proclaiming. As Luke goes on into chapter 8, verse 1, it says, He was proclaiming and bringing the good news, the gospel of the righteous life and substitutionary death that he had come to accomplish. Listen as the Puritan Robert Trail takes us through it in five steps. Trail said this, There can be no justification without a righteousness. That is, for us to be right with God, we need a righteousness. There needs to be a basis for a declaration of a righteousness. Secondly, no righteousness can suffice but that which answers fully and perfectly the holy law of God. That is, righteousness must be on God's standard. It must be perfection. Then thirdly, Trail says, no such righteousness can be performed but by a divine person. Who can accomplish the righteousness of God but God? Fourthly, Trail says, then no benefit can accrue to a sinner by it unless it is in some way his and applied to him. Jesus performed perfect, perpetual righteousness on this earth, but it's 2,000 years ago. It wasn't by me. How do I get that? Fifthly, Trail says, finally, no application can be made of this but by faith in Jesus Christ. All those who rest and receive in the Lord Jesus have been joined to Him. His righteousness is theirs. 
as they are one with him. The whole wonder and mystery of the incarnation of the second person of the triune God is to accomplish this great salvation. To unite sinful humanity with perfect humanity. The great exchange that on the cross Jesus suffered for sins he never committed, that on his resurrection we would be united to the one to have perfect righteousness that's not ours. And it all happens by faith, by receiving in the Lord, by answering this question, who is this? That is the question, friend, that every single one of us needs to answer. Who is this? This is exactly who he says he is and showed himself to be. God's Son who forgives sins, who must forgive the sins of anyone if they're to be rescued from God's judgment. Maybe we may have sinned less than many, but we've all sinned. How will we pay our debt? Except by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to that question with which we opened. How do we kindle affections for Christ in this church? What do you say to someone whose love for Christ seems to waver? What about your sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus? What about God is your Father and you stand before Him in perfect righteousness clothed in Christ? What about you are accepted and beloved? by the God who made all things. You are His forever. There is a lot before us as Christians and perhaps more coming in the years ahead. But before we will ever do a thing, we need, beloved, greater and fresher appropriations of the wonder that our holy God forgives us by faith alone. You are His and you are loved because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we we will never exhaust in eternity praising You for Your goodness and Your kindness and Your inexhaustible mercies to us in Your Son, Jesus. We pray that there would be none among us this morning who were not resting and receiving the righteousness of Your Son and forgiveness of sins by faith alone in Christ. Our Father, we pray that you would find all of us in that posture of heart. And we pray also that you would kindle afresh our devotion to you, our love for you, our disregard of the world's opinion, because we have found freedom and forgiveness in your beloved Son. Help us to serve you, to seek you, to seek your glory in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our community, and as a congregation, because we're your beloved children loved by you. We thank you for this time. May the meditation of our heart remain on your grace and goodness and your holy love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.